Okay, good evening. And I just wanted to quickly thank Kesher Israel for hosting me for this Mishmar event. Um, even if it's uh, only over Zoom, the fact that I'm here in South Florida and you guys are in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, um, is of little consequence. The, the Torah that we'll learn will bring us together. And I also want to thank my longtime friend, Danny Floman, for, um, for flying me in um, and having me here. So uh, thank you very much. And uh, this week's Parsha is Parsha Shalach. And the idea that I want to talk about has very much to do with the story. It's all about the story of the Miraglim, but particularly, as we're going to see, about the hero of the story. So with that introduction, I'm going to ask you a very unfair question. Who was the hero of the spies? Who was the hero of the Miraglim? And you can only pick one. You can only pick one. Okay, so uh, you're raising your hand in the blue shirt. What's your name? Sorry, what is that? Ellen. Okay, Ares, okay, go ahead. Who's the, who's the hero? Khalif. You say Khalif. Thumbs up if you, if, you're, if you agree with him. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Okay, any, any other options? Yeah, you in the back? Gadiel? Okay, um, I, I, I don't want to spoil it so much, but uh, he's, he's not one of the ones that succeeds. Uh, Avadi Moshe, go to sleep. Okay, so, so um, usually, usually the, the, the top two answers that, that usually come up are either Khalif or the person who would reasonably be called at least his teammate. We would say the other one might be? Yoshua, thank you, which is my name, so I, I'm, I, I'm biased towards that answer. Um, but, so yeah, those are, those, those are the two choices, Yehoshua and Kalev. So you might have your reasons for picking one over the other, but a question that I want to pose to you is, regardless of who you think is the hero of the story, who is greater of those two? Perhaps another unfair question, who is greater, Kalev or Yehoshua? What do you think? Yeshua. You think you think Yeshua is greater. So, um, any uh, any proofs to that? Why would you say that? Because what? Okay, the successor to Moshe. You can't get much better than that other than being Moshe Rabbeinu himself. So that's a fair reason to assume that Kalev is perhaps a step above, sorry, that Yehoshua is a step above Kalev. Uh, but we know that in the story, if you look throughout the story, so although these are clearly the two heroes, if you follow the sources that I gave you, and we'll start with the first one just to see um, as the story plays out, I gave you plenty of sources from the story itself. And the truth is, for most of the sources, all you would really need is a Chumash and Rashi. Uh, but uh, the real great sources are going to be towards the end when we get to see some of the Midrashim that pull everything together. But we'll start off with just the first source. And we see the roles that each Yeshua and Kalev play in the story. And if, if you're following along, it's very, very clear that one of these two individuals seems to at least play more of an active role, if we can call it that. And yet we're going to see how the Chumash seems to give preference to either of the two. So we start off with source number one. The first time that we find any 
of the Meraglim speaking up in contrast to the other Meraglim. The Meraglim, they came back with their reports. We know that Moshe Rabbeinu um, spoke to Hashem before getting the okay to send in the Meraglim, whether or not it was a good idea to do in the first place. Chazal explained how they, they, how they felt about it. And the Meraglim come back. They come back with their negative reports. They say what they have to say. They say the land is great. FS, except for all the different things, all the different reasons why they think that they're not going to be able to enter Eretz Yisrael. And of course, every time you say a bunch of good things, and then you say, but, or you say, having said that, um, or with that said, usually what's about to follow is something that's going to go in stark contrast to the positive. And the word FS actually means zero. So what we're saying is everything that we said until now, we're going to discount with the bad news that we have to share. And they share all their bad news. And then we have source number one, where the Pusik says, Vayahas Kalev Esha'am, that Kalev hushed the nation. Um, so I actually, I, um, uh, Danny and I had a, had a teacher in, uh, in, in high school, uh, a great, great English teacher. She'd always say, hush. That would be everything. Hush. So Vayahas Kalev, Kalev, Kalev hushed the people. El Moshe. He hushed them towards Moshe. Vayomer, and he said, Allah Nalet, we're going to for sure go up. Vyarashnu Osa, we're going to inherit it. Kiochol Nuchala, because we're going to be able to do it. And so how exactly did Kalev hush them? And how, what does it mean that he hushed them to Moshe? So Rashi famously says, I didn't give you this Rashi, but Rashi famously says that while everyone was ganging up on Moshe and saying all these bad things, so Kalev pokes in and says, by the way, you know what else Ben Amram did? You know what else the son of Amram did? I'll tell you something else that he did. So he says, I'll tell, I'll tell you what else he did. And so he says, what else did Moshe do? Moshe brought us the mun. He gave us the Torah. He got us out of Mitzrayim. He split the sea. He gave us the quail that we complained for in last week's Parsha. And so Kalev comes up with all these amazing things that, that Moshe did. And that's how he quieted everyone down. So he says all these things. And now the, and so Kalev has made his mark on the story. So then we get to source number two where we see the Chumash starting to give preference. When the Chumash begins to give preference, we see an order. The Pasuk says in Yodalad Vav, V'yoshua benun v'chalev ben Yifuna min atarimes aretz karu b'gdayhem. After the Miraglim and the nation shouted down Kalev, despite everything that Kalev had said, the Pasuk tells us that Yoshua and Kalev respond by tearing their clothes. And we notice the pattern, the first part of the pattern at least, is that Yoshua's name is listed first. Okay? But then... When we get to Hashem's response to what happened with the Miraglim, when Hashem is decreeing all these bad things that are going to happen to the Bnei Yisrael because they listened to the Miraglim, because they started panicking and crying, so Hashem says that you guys are not going to get to enter Eretz Yisrael. However, in Source 3, Va'avdi Kalev, but my servant Kalev, Akev, as a result of the fact that Haisaruach Acharis, he had um, Emo with him, he had an, another kind of a spirit. Rashi explains what that spirit was. That on, on the one hand, with his mouth, he seemed to agree at first with the Miraglim. He would, uh, during, the, during the journey, he would say to the Miraglim, oh yeah, I agree with you. He would play it up as though he was on their team, even though in his heart he always knew that he was going to argue with them later, he was going to dispute them. And because of that, says Hashem, I'm going to bring him to the land, but nobody else. And you notice whose name is absent. The name of the person who is going to be leading the Bnei Israel into Eretz Israel. In this promise, Hashem does not mention the name of Yehoshua. Okay, fine. So Yehoshua's name is not there. Then we get to source number four. 
And in source number four, we have Hashem continuing his speech. And he says, Only Only those two are going to get to enter the land. So now Hashem mentions the two names again. Actually, this is the first time that Hashem actually mentions Yehoshua's name. The first time Yehoshua is getting any credit. And notice how Yehoshua at this point has not said a thing. Yehoshua has not said anything in the story. And Hashem says, just Kalev and Yehoshua are going to get to enter the land. And then, a few psukim later, Yehoshua benun v'chalev ben Yifune, those two, once again, Yehoshua and Kalev, hayumin ha'anashim ha'yim ha'ochem l'sores aretz. So the Pasuk just refers to them as those who, who came uh, with, the, with the Meraglim. And the order is switched. We have Yehoshua and then Kalev. So what, what seems to be very clear is that there is no consistency Seemingly no consistency in the order of the names, Yeshua versus Kalev. So we find um, when Hashem talks about the, the, the merit of he who succeeded in this mission, he mentions just Kalev. Then in passing, he says, oh, Kalev and Yeshua are going to enter the land. And we had a couple of verses scattered where it seemed that Yeshua's name was mentioned first. Okay, so we have this, uh, this difference between Kalev and Yeshua. So... At first glance, when I asked you who is the hero of the story, so the, the, the most popular answer, I think, was Kalev. And we can understand why that would be true, because Kalev, after all, he was the one that spoke up against the Meraglim. He was the one where no one else would say anything, no one else would defend Moshe, and Kalev was the one. Even Moshe's greatest disciple, Yehoshua, does not speak up on his behalf, which is a little bit strange. So we, we can understand why Kalev is given the credit, but if, if that's true, we have to consider then the question of where was Yehoshua in all of this? Why wasn't Yehoshua acting differently? So just further evidence of Kalev's centrality in this story. We know the fact that Kalev spoke up. We know that Kalev had a whole plan, that Kalev had... Um, he, had, he had planned always to dispute the Meraglim, whatever they were going to say, he spoke up. And, um, and only until that point that he had to speak up, Kalev talked it up as though he would be on their team. We have no evidence that Yehoshua did anything of the sort. But Rashi just tells us that Kalev was one way with his heart, one way with his mouth. That he spoke like he was on their team, but in his heart he always planned to do differently. So what about Yehoshua? So we know that Yehoshua did not always have the name Yehoshua. The, the evidence that we have of Yehoshua's passivity seems to be in the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu at the beginning of the Parsha changes his name. Um, I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't recall if I, if I gave you the source. Um, yes, I did. In source number six, so, so we're skipping a little bit. Source number six, we have These are the names of the people that Moshe sent to spy out the land. The Torah just gave the list. And then the Pasuk says, And this is apparently the story where Moshe called Hoshea's name Yehoshua and explains Rashi what was the basis for this name change. So this was actually a tefillah. And what was the nature of the tefillah? Hispalel alav. He davened for him, The name Hoshea means salvation, but the name Yehoshua is a contraction of the words Yehoshiacha. So it means, it means Hashem should save you. Okay? So, so the, the contraction of, of 
Yud, and then Hoshea means the Hashem should save you from the counsel, from the from the scheme of the Meraglim. So the the question is, why did Moshe just change Hoshea's name to Yehoshua? Why didn't he why didn't he change anybody else's name? Why didn't he dive in for the Meraglim themselves? At least dive in for Kalev. So if, this, if, if Moshe, Moshe seems to have a suspicion that this mission is going to go wrong. So if Moshe has the suspicion that the whole entire mission is going to go wrong, so you can think of a, a few different arguments that we can make at this point. Maybe don't send them. And if you're going to send them, you may as well dive in for everybody so that everybody can succeed in this mission. So some, some basic answers we can give to this is that there, at this point, there was no option of not going on the mission. The people had already demanded that, that they do this. Moshe already got the okay. There was no turning back. And perhaps um, Moshe would have theoretically davened. We have to imagine that Moshe, in his regular Shemona Esrei that day, um, or whatever he davened, he, he had in mind that the mission should be a success. But the special name change for Yehoshua... So there was a very particular reason for that. Moshe Rabbeinu does not have it within his capacity to change the free choice of anybody in this story. If someone wants to do an Avera, they're going to be able to do an Avera with or without Moshe's tefillah. But Moshe Davins specifically for Hoshea, and some explain the reason has to do with Hoshea's, um, um, for, with his, uh, his humility. Right? Um, Hoshea, or Yehoshua, was the greatest disciple of Moshe, and Moshe Rabbeinu's greatest attribute was his humility. So there's a fair reason to assume that Hoshea is impressionable, that out of his humility, he might let others shout him down, and perhaps he might be influenced by them. And we find that Kalev needed no such tefillah, because Rashi tells us, and this I also gave you in source number five, so if you look in uh, Yud Gimel Chavbez, Rashi Vayavo Ad Chevron, the Pusik says that Kalev came until Chevron. What was he doing over there? So it says Rashi, based on the Medrash, Kalev Levado Halachsham. Kalev himself went there, Vinishtatech Al Kivrei Avos. He, he prostrated himself and davened by the graves of the Avos. Shaloyehe Nisas Lechaverov Liosbat. So some Kalev did what we don't find Yehoshua did. Kalev davened for himself. Kalev fended for himself. Seeming like a true hero, Kalev is the one that's acting, Kalev is the one that's on the forefront, and Kalev proactively is davening for himself, something that we don't find that Yehoshua did. So it also begs the question then of how is it that Yehoshua became you know, the successor? Based on this story alone, we would say that Kalev should be the successor. Kalev is the one that's doing everything right. And it seems that Yehoshua is just you know, happy to be there, happy to have Moshe holding him up, happy that you know, he, he, didn't, he didn't make the same mistake that he was apparently just as vulnerable to making as all the other Miraglim made. And it could have been Yehoshua too. Lucky that he had Moshe on his side, which is what, which is what seems from what we see so far. So the question then, once again, is who is greater, Kalev or Yehoshua? So we argue that Yehoshua has to be greater because Yehoshua was the successor to Moshe. Yet the hero of the story apparently is Kalev. So I'm going to try to offer what might at first glance look like a cliche cop-out answer. And it's an answer that you've heard before in reference to two other people. And those would be Moshe and Aaron. The cop-out answer is, what do you think? What do you think is the cop-out answer? Who's greater, Moshe, uh, Kalev or Yoshua? So I'd say the, the cop-out answer is that, oh, come on, they're both great. 
you know they're, they're, they're both awesome they you know you can you can't you can't compare it's apples and oranges they're both really really good and this is a famous idea that rashi says back in parshas vaera about moshe and aaron the Pasuk uh, tells us when it's recounting the, uh, the legacy, the lineage of Moshe and Aaron, just before Moshe and Aaron go before Paro for the second time. So the Torah tells us who Moshe and Aaron, and this I gave you in, uh, in Rashi. This is source number seven. It's on the next page, on the next side. So once again, the Pasuk says, who Aaron and Moshe? These were Aaron and Moshe. So explains Rashi. I'm going to skip to the end of the first line. Yesh Mekomos Shemakdim Aaron LeMoshe. There are times where Aaron's name is listed before Moshe. By the way, spoiler: this is the only time that Aaron's name is listed before Moshe. But Tzarechia, um, um, <coughs> as to why Rashi says there are some places, this is the one place that Aaron's name is listed before Moshe. And he says, "V'yesh Mekomos Shemakdim Moshe LaAaron." There are times where Moshe's name is mentioned before Aaron. What does this tell us? Lomar They were considered equal as one. They were they were each on the same level as it were. Now the famous question that's asked about this is, what in the world does that mean? How can how can you even say that? How can how can you even imagine? How can you conceive of Aaron being nearly as great as Moshe if Moshe was the leader of Kla Israel? Moshe was uh, the, the greatest Navi, the Torah says itself that there was no Navi like Moshe, there was no one as great as Moshe. Last week's Parsha, um, the, the Nevuah from Moshe and every other Navi was contrasted, even when Miriam and Aaron suspected that maybe they have a similar level of Nevuah, and they were clearly told by Hashem himself that that was not true. We know that there was no one greater than Moshe. And Rav Moshe Feinstein gives the very famous answer that each Moshe and Aaron fulfilled their potential. There's no way that anyone can be on the level of Moshe Rabbeinu, but everyone has the opportunity to fulfill their potential. This is also the question, or the answer to a question that, that, that's asked on the Rambam. The Rambam mentions that every single person in the world has the potential to be as great as Moshe Rabbeinu. And the question is, no, you can't. Um, the Torah basically says you can't. No one can be as great as Moshe Rabbeinu. And the answer is yes, but you know, you could, fulfill, you could fulfill your greatest potential just the way Moshe Rabbeinu did. Everyone has it within their capacity to fulfill what's within their capacity. So everyone can be as great and fulfill the gauge the way Moshe filled his gauge. So that's something that we suggest about Moshe and Aaron. Now, can we apply the same cliche to Kalev and Yehoshua? And I would say not only yes, but apparently there's a medrash that says the very same thing. And uh, the medrash can be found in the Bereshis Rabbah. This is source number eight. And um, I... Thank my older brother who, who found this medrash for me. The medrash is, is, is talking about various items and people that are listed in the Chumash, and sometimes the order changes. So, for example, it says, what's greater, Shemayim or Aretz? And the Chumash shows, and the medrash shows how different places in the Chumash we find sometimes Shemayim is listed first, sometimes the Aretz is listed first. And it asks it about the Avos also. Usually the Avos are listed, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. There's one place in the Chumash that they're listed um, in the opposite order, Yaakov, Yitzhak, Avraham. So we find, so we find, um, we find the order switch. And here's where we find the Medrash, which comments on not only um, Moshe and Aram, but it comments on Yahushua and Kalev as well. So the, uh, the, the, I gave you the lines from, as, um, from where it says, B'chol makom humaktim. There, um, in most places, we find that Moshe's name is before Aaron. B'makom echad hu omer. And one place it says, who Aaron and Moshe. One place it says, these are Moshe, Aaron and Moshe. Melamid, that what? Shishnei shkolim um, um, zeh They're each equal. Fine. And then we find 
our source, for our context. Most places, whenever Kalev and Yeshua are mentioned in the same breath, it's actually Yeshua and Kalev. But in one place it says, The Medrash for some reason adds the word, Then in one place when Hashem is talking, when Hashem himself is the talking, is talking and not the divine narrator, so um, it says, Kalev and Yehoshua. They're each equal. Great. Kalev and Yeshua were equally great. So certainly from the story, it doesn't seem that way. But what are we supposed to make of the fact that Yehoshua, once again, seems to be riding off the coattails of Moshe Rabbeinu? And that it seems to be almost without that. You know, Yehoshua is to himself. He's quiet. Didn't do anything wrong. But we don't really find that he did particularly anything right. The, the only time that, you know, we find when they're mentioned together, so Yehoshua's name is mentioned first most of the time. It says when they tore their clothes, Yehoshua acted first. But when it came to everything verbal, all the diplomacy came from Kalev. So let's consider Kalev and Yehoshua and their their roles in terms of what each of them embodied, what each of their missions were. Because what I want to suggest to you is that although it seems on the, from the forefront that Kalev is the true hero of the story, I want to argue that Yehoshua is just as great a hero. I'm not going to argue that he's more, but I would say, as the Medrash says, he's equal to Kalev. And not only that, but Yehoshua did every single thing that he was supposed to do in this story. In fact, there was nothing more that Yehoshua was supposed to do. There was nothing less that Yehoshua might have done. Everything that was supposed to be done, each in terms of the role that Yehoshua was supposed to play, he did everything exactly as he was supposed to. So where, where might we get that from? So, once again, let's, let's travel a little bit back in time. And uh, the reason why we should travel back in time to understand the mission of Yehoshua and Kalev is because this story um, certainly has echoes from an earlier story in the Torah. Um, and and the, the story that we find has to do with what is referred to in this story as the Deba. The Deba is the report, the report that was, that was issued, that was given about the land of Eretz Yisrael. There's, there's another time, one time earlier in the Torah that we have the word, a report. Anyone know where that could be found? It's one time earlier. Yeah? Okay, so very good. Um, so we find by Yosef, in the story with Yosef and his brothers, so the Pasuk tells us that, Yosef, Yosef brought the evil reports about his brothers to, to uh, their father. And we'll, we'll, we'll get to the relevance of Yehuda in a second, but we see where Yosef went wrong so many uh, generations ago. Now, we know that Yosef is the forebearer of which person in our story? Who comes from Yosef? So if you take a look at source number 11, we have Lamate Yehuda, Kalev ben Yefune. Lamate Ephraim, so Ephraim is one of the sons of Yosef, that's Hoshea ben Nun. So Yehoshua descends from Yosef. Okay? And we find in a story about evil reports where Yosef went wrong, Yosef went wrong 
by speaking out in, in a very negative context the way that he should not have. And uh, this, uh, we, we find that the reports of Yosef was what seemed to be the instigation of the story that led to the sale of Yosef, which led to the Gullus of Mitzrayim. Our whole Sheibut, our subjugation in Egypt, was the result of Mechiras Yosef. And we can argue that even though the brothers undoubtedly did the wrong thing in that story, there was no hiding the fact that Yosef did the wrong thing. And this is uh, not just me saying it, but uh, the Chazal point out that when Yosef um, issued these reports about his brothers, that some of the reports he said were accurate, that the brothers demeaned the children of the, of the um, handmaids. So this was true. Uh, he, he did, he did, uh, um, the, the brothers did demean them. But there were other allegations that Yosef made against his brothers, which were completely uncalled for. That he said that they engaged in illicit relations, that they ate from Avram and Achai. Rashi says that these were um, misunderstandings of Yosef, that Yosef did not have the entire story when he made these allegations. And, um, and because of that, Yosef was subject to the suffering that he had to go through, the mechira, the, the enticement of Ashes Potiphar, all the things that he had to go through. And again, all this started from the evil reports. Now let's fast forward to our story, where we have the, the Deba against the land, the report against the land. So we have Lashon Hara taking place in its manifest against Eretz Yisrael, the Ramban does differentiate between two expressions that we find, one in the Yosef story and one in this story. By Yosef, it says that he brought the reports. By Yahweh Yosef Samra. Here it says that they were Motsi Diba. When you're Motsi Diba, so the Ramban says what Yosef did, Yosef didn't so much um, editorialize. Um, Yosef brought the reports. He said what he thought he saw, and that was about it. When it came to the Meraglim, they were Motsi Diba. When we say it to be Motsi a report. To motzi, it means to, to bring out. When you bring it out, it means you created it almost out of thin air. That you didn't just say what you saw, but you said a little bit more. You editorialize and you start um, saying it in a negative way. We have the concept of motzi shamra. We don't say maybe shamra. You don't say that you bring a bad name, but you say you bring out a bad name. You issue a bad name. So here, the Ramban makes that differentiation. He says that Yosef was a little bit more in the clear, even though Yosef did the wrong thing. But the Ramban makes that contrast. But putting that contrast aside, we have a report against the land. And what direction is this report going to take the Bnei Israel on if the Meraglim get what they want? Which way do they end up walking in the Midbar? So they say, Nitna Rosh, let's appoint a new head. Vinashuva Mitzrayma. They say we're going to go back to Mitzrayim. What that means is that if the Meraglim had their way, they would undo the exodus they would go back to their Egyptian exile. And how would they do that? With an evil report. The same way they got down to Egypt in the first place, the same way they entered their exile, they were about to return to their exile. When the Bnei Israel said, let's appoint a new leader, go back to Mitzrayim. So we see an evil report happening within the tribes of the Bnei Israel, just like it happened so many generations ago in Sefer Bereshis. And now it's going to happen again if someone doesn't do something. And the question is, who is supposed to speak up? So we find that it's not Yehoshua who speaks up. Yehoshua at this point does not speak up. Yehoshua issues no report at all. He says nothing. He completely goes to the opposite extreme, says nothing. And we find Kalev speaking up. So we, we took a look at Yosef for a second. Let's go back to Kalev's ancestor. So Kalev descends from Yehuda. And Yehuda, we know that Yehuda's big problem 
was actually in the sale of Yosef. We know he was the one that came up with the idea of selling Yosef away. And then Yehuda covered up. Yehuda attempted to clam up to not uh, to, you know, to, to, to be silent, to absolve himself from all responsibility. When he says, and when they send the message back to Yaakov, hey Yaakov, do you recognize this, this colorful tunic? Do you recognize um, you know, where, where it came from? Maybe it's your son's. But this is, Yehosh- this is um, Yehuda taking a back seat after uh, instigating the Avera, and then he kind of quiets down. But when does, Yeh- when does Yehuda finally shine? Yehuda finally shines when he actually speaks up at a time where he really most needed to. In the time of his daughter-in-law and then his soon-to-be wife, Tamar. So when, when, uh, when, he, when we know the whole story, that he engaged with the relationship with her, not knowing that it was her. And when she was about to be killed, she was being taken out because she was supposed to wait for um, Yehuda's third son. The first two sons died when they were married to Tamar. And because of, and because of that, they... Uh, because of that, Yehuda did not want to give his third son to Tamar, and so Tamar came up with the whole scheme to marry Yehuda, and so that was the whole story. Yehuda speaks up and says, Tzadka Mimeni. What Yehuda does is he engages in an act of admission, an act of hoda'a, which is actually going along with Yehuda's namesake. But until that point, Yehuda would be quiet, he would absolve himself of responsibility, and he had the opportunity. When Tamar showed Yehuda, look, these are the objects of the person that slept with me, Yehuda had the option of being quiet, but he shined when he spoke up and said, I'm going to be the one to do something about it. I'm the one that this depends on. That was, that was Yehuda. And we find Yehuda stepping up to the plate again when Binyamin, Yaakov's interim favorite son, when Yosef is no longer around, Yosef is the viceroy, and Binyamin is at harm's way, Yehuda's the one that speaks up and says, I'm going to be the one that's going to take care of him. This is Yehuda jumping on the scene to take responsibility. So what we find is that when it comes to Yosef, Yosef's big, uh, Yosef's big uh, fall takes place when Yosef speaks up when he shouldn't. And by the way, every time Yosef seems to be on top, when it seems that Yosef is feeling high and mighty about himself, that's every time that Yosef falls. So when Yosef felt confident in the home of Potiphar, that was just when he got knocked down again. And when Yosef spoke up in the prison and he said, oh, I did nothing wrong to deserve what I'm getting. And Yosef had all these wonderful things to say about how he didn't deserve it. And what happened? He gets forgotten. He's knocked down again. He's in jail for another couple of years. What we see is that every time Yosef speaks up and says the wrong thing, he, he, he suffers for it. But Yehuda, Yehuda's folly is when he tries to absolve himself of responsibility, take a back seat, and make as though there's nothing for him to do. But they both shine when they do the opposite. When Yosef mellows and when Yosef is humble, Yosef succeeds. And when Yehuda speaks up, and he's not clamming up, but when he speaks up, Yehuda does everything that he's supposed to do. Now we fast forward to our story. And in our story, we have, once again, Yehoshua and Kalev, and Yehoshua is the introvert in the story. Yehuda is, and Kalev is the extrovert in the story. And at this point, what is Yehoshua doing? He's rectifying the sin of the evil report by not saying a word. And Yehoshua does what we call as grabbing onto the mida of shtika, the mida of silence. And Yehuda, he does the opposite. Yehuda and Kalev in this story, 
he grabs on to the opposite midah, the midah of hoda'ah. Hoda'ah, which means to acknowledge, it means to give thanks, but it also means to admit, and it also means to take responsibility. And if you look, this is not just a sentiment about Yehoshua and Kalev, but if you look in source number 12, we find incredible Medrash Rabbah, Ayin Aleph, Hey, and this Medrash contrasts none other than Leah and Rachel. Leah, the mother of Yehuda, Rachel, the mother of Yosef. And what does the Medrash say? So uh, we'll start from where it's in the bold. Leah Tavsa Pelech Hodaya. Hodaya is just another, it's an alternative spelling to Hoda'a. Leah grabs on to the service of acknowledgement. Ve'amdu heimena bale hodaya. And what happened? From her emerged many bale hodaya, many people who would acknowledge, people who would speak up when they need to. Yehuda, so for example, vayaker Yehuda vayomer tzad kamimani. Yehuda recognized his objects and he said, Tamar is more righteous than I am. All of this happened because of me. I did the wrong thing. David Hamelech, David also comes from Yehuda. So David Amar, hodu lashem kitov. The word hodu, same shoresh, hodu, hoda'a, Yehuda. Then the, they give an example from Daniel, and so on and so forth. That's Yehuda. And right, we know that when Leah gives birth to um, Yehuda, she says, Hapa'am es Hashem. Now I'm going to give thanks to Hashem. And we know that the Lashon of Vidoy, of confession, is related to, to Hoda'a, which means to thank. Because every time you thank someone, you're admitting that you needed their help. So the entire essence of Yehuda and the Midah that Kalev latches onto is the Midah of Hoda'a, the Midah of speaking up and saying what needs to be said. That's Kalev, that's Yehuda, that's Leah. Now we move on to Rachel. Rachel Tavsa Pelech Shtika. Rachel grabs onto the service of Shtika, of silence. Va'amdu Kalbaneha Ba'ale Misterin. And you know what we find that happened in all of Rachel's descendants? They were all Ba'ale Misterin. Um, um, so. Um, this expression has the same connotations of, of, of being silent. Binyamin, Yashve, Yeshpeh. So Binyamin, his stone on the Choshen, on the, on the breastplate of the Kohen, was called Yashve, uh, which, by the way, Daniel, the, the name of Jasvi is related. Jasvi comes from Jasper, which comes from Yashve. So Yashve um, um, is a, it's a contraction of the words Yeshpeh. There is a mouth. And says the Medrash, Binyamin uniquely knew about the sale of Yosef, but he kept quiet. Why didn't he tell Yaakov? Unclear. But Binyamin thought that right now my role is to be quiet, so he chose to be quiet. Sometimes it's a virtue to be quiet. Shaul, Shaul was the, the first king of the Bnei Israel. He descended from Rachel as well. And Shaul kept quiet. He didn't talk about how he was going to be a king. Famously, we have Esther Hamalka. Ain Esther Magedas Molarta. Esther did not speak out about, about where she came from. And so on and so forth. So, where does, uh, where does Rachel Imenu manifest the Midah of Shtika? So Rachel Imenu knew about the plan of Lavan. She knew that Lavan was going to take Leah and marry her to Yaakov instead of Rachel. And Rachel... She quietly actually defied Yaakov and she did it so that her sister wouldn't be embarrassed. And now this might bother a lot of people, like how can Yaakov want to go back to Rachel after Rachel defies him like that? So the truth is, Yaakov understood 
what Rachel understood at the time, Rachel didn't think she was ever going to marry Yaakov at that point. Rachel thought that she was sacrificing her marriage to Yaakov. So she did this with the, with the, with the foreknowledge and the, and the expectation. She did this with the expectation. She did this with the expectation that she was not going to marry Yaakov. And, and what did she do? She was mavater. She was silent. She sat on the sidelines while she watched Leah marry the person that was supposed to be her husband. And we see Rachel, again, mastering the art of shtika, the art of silence. So, at the end of the day, there are different kinds of people and different kinds of roles. And if the question is, what's better? Is it better to be an introvert or an extrovert? Or is it better to speak up or is it better to be silent? So, if you look in the final source, I gave you a very interesting Maimur Chazal, which has legal ramifications. A very famous line from the Gemara of Metziah on Lamed Zayin Mabez, this is source 13, the final source. The line is, Shtika Kehoda'a. Shtika Kehoda'a, which literally means silence is like consent, silence is like admission. We find this, uh, again, the legal ramifications, for example, if someone accuses someone of something or someone asks them for something and the person doesn't answer, so what that usually means is they're agreeing, they're consenting, they're admitting. You accuse someone of something and they don't answer, so sometimes... Silence can mean I don't want to provoke anything, but there are legal circumstances under which being silent is really the same as speaking up. It's the same as admitting. I wanted to take an agadic approach, um, a midrashic approach, a homilitical approach to this line of to suggest that sometimes it's important to be quiet. Sometimes it's important to speak up, to admit, to confess, to, to, to praise at times. And there's a time and a place for being quiet. There's a time and a place for speaking out. And at the point of the story of the Maraglim, Yehoshua's job was to be quiet. His job was to rectify Yosef's mistake, not to speak up, but to grab onto the midah of his mother, Rachel Imenu, and to be silent. Kalev's job was to rectify the sin of Yehuda. It was to rectify the sin of Mechiras Yosef and it was to grab onto the Midah of Leah, which is to be, to be Moda, to be Moda, to, to agree, to admit, to speak up and to, to, to play an active, proactive role and a verbal role, an extroverted role by, by, by speaking out. And it's, it's hard to know what's expected of us at any given moment. But what I, what I would suggest is we have to look into ourselves Look into what um, appeals to us naturally, because sometimes what appeals to us most naturally is the wrong thing to do. Because sometimes that's the art of the Eight Sahara. The Eight Sahara will tell you, listen, it's much more comfortable to stay silent, not to speak up when you see someone doing the wrong thing. It's much more comfortable just to stay on the sidelines. And yet there are times where we think we want to speak up, that we want to get the last word, that we think it's the right thing to, um, to, to, to make our voices heard. And sometimes that's not, that's not what the context is, calls for. Sometimes the context calls for us to actually be silent. So it really depends on the circumstance. It depends on ourselves. Sometimes it depends on speaking to someone who knows us well, speaking to our local Orthodox rabbi. Um, right, uh, um, yeah, uh, but to, 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 to speak to our Rav, to speak to somebody who knows us well, to get Eitzah, to find counsel. We see that Moshe davened for Yehoshua because Moshe expected Yehoshua to be quiet. 
Now, Moshe could have told Yehoshua, Yehoshua, you should stick up for yourself, be confident, be loud. That's not what he told him. Moshe allowed Yehoshua to be his passive, introverted self, his humble self, and Moshe davened for him that he shouldn't follow into the Eitzah of the Meraglim. When it came to Kalev, no such tefillah was required, at least not on Moshe's part. Kalev fended for himself, and that was Kalev's avoda. Kalev's avoda was to speak up and do what he needed to do. Now, um, I, I have an extra source I found in the Chafetz Chaim Torah. The Chafetz Chaim makes a very similar contrast between Kalev and Yoshua. So extra credit, bonus reading that you can do afterwards. I already sent Danny the source so he can send you the PDF. I gave you the Chafetz Chaim Torah. Some extra reading on Kalev versus Yoshua to see the differences between them. But what's very clear is that in this story, we have undeniably there are two heroes in this story and two heroes whom the Medrash tells us were equal in stature. And they each latched on to a different midah, a different avoda. And at the end of the day, we're allowed to be different. That's okay. But um, to, to know in, in every single circumstance what is being called of us. Is it to call out or is it, uh, is it to be silent? And uh, we should be zocha to, to, to know the answers when these pressing questions come up. And we should each tap into our greatest potential to fulfill our, our greatness that's, that's in store for us in, in both the midahs of shtika and hoda, each in their proper time. Guys, uh, thank you again for having me.